This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Tony Blinken is the foreign policy advisor to the Biden 2020 campaign. Tony held senior positions in the Obama administration, including Deputy Secretary of State, Deputy National Security Advisor, and National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden. Prior to the Obama administration, Tony served as Democratic Staff Director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Tony joins us today to talk about what the foreign policy of a President Biden might look like. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tony, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Uh, This is your second time on the program, but your first representing the Biden campaign. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. I should... uh, tell our listeners that we asked the Trump White House to provide a spokesperson on the president's foreign policy that we could produce as a separate episode that we would run after yours, Tony. And we are still waiting to hear from them. I just wanted my listeners to know that. And maybe, Tony, the place to start is because this is intelligence matters, I'd like to start with the vice president as an intelligence consumer. Can you talk about what he was like as an intelligence consumer when he was the vice president and how do you think he might approach the intelligence community as president? Michael, the word that comes to mind uh, in terms of the uh, vice president's consumption of intelligence products is voracious. Um, And, you know, when he was out of office, he told me early on the thing he missed the most 
was the morning uh, PDB uh, meeting, the pre- mm. president's daily brief, uh, where he really felt that um, uh, he knew what was going on in uh, in every corner of the world, and something he felt very disconnected from when he was out of office. So, I uh, I suspect no, I know that as um, as president, he would be a, a voracious consumer. Uh, of intelligence. Unfortunately, that, that stands in rather stark contrast to, to President Trump. Uh, we've seen, uh, seen it reported again and again that at critical moments, uh, he either didn't read or ignored uh, vital intelligence products. When he was getting warnings about COVID-19 uh, in his president's daily brief, uh, either he uh, didn't read them or, or he ignored them. And similarly, uh, reports that when he got uh, intelligence about uh, Russia paying bounties to the Taliban to kill our troops, same thing, either didn't read it or ignored it. Um, that would not happen in a Joe Biden administration. Tony, you were, you were his, his national security advisor during the first term. Did he, did he get the PDB before the session with the president or was that the first time he was seeing it was when the president was there? No, no, he got it. Uh, he, he got it before he typically, um, he certainly had the book uh, before on occasion, he'd get an actual briefing of his own, uh, beforehand. And in fact, I'd get called in sometimes before we went to see the president, uh, where he wanted to uh, get in, into greater depth on, on something. But, uh, typically he had read the, uh, the book, uh, before the meeting with the president. Do you think he, he thinks about having to, a little bit of a dif- difficult question, but do you think he thinks about having to repair the relationship between the IC and the person who sits in the White House? In short, yes. Um, and unfortunately, that that repair mission uh, is probably one that'll have to happen across the board with a, uh, a multiplicity of, of government agencies that have been um, egregiously uh, politicized by, by this administration, turning them into instruments of the president's personal interests as opposed to the national interest. And unfortunately, the intelligence community is probably right at the top of the list. And how do you do that? How do you go about fixing that? Um, and I understand that's you know going to be something that's going to be done across the board. But how do you go about doing that in practice? First thing, Michael, is to send a very clear and direct message uh, that um, a, a President Biden will not politicize uh, intelligence, will insist that truth always be spoken to power. Uh, will demand that people bring their best analysis uh, and best judgment and not in any way shape it to what they perceive to be the uh, political desires or political interests of the incumbent. And I think that's a signal, um, a message he would send immediately. And of course, it what flows from that too is the people that you appoint to lead these agencies. Uh, he would insist that that be their standard and he would insist that they communicate the same thing to the men and women uh, working uh, with them and working for the country. So it, it really starts, you know, on day one with um, with the message you send, what you say, uh, who you ask to uh, to lead these agencies. So Tony, I want to get into a set of specific issues and kind of run them by you, but maybe a, a handful of kind of general questions before we sure. get to the specifics. And the first is the vice president's vision for what a Biden administration's foreign policy would look like, right? And I guess it comes down to how does he think about America's role in the world? So look, I would sum it up in three words, <laughs> leadership, uh, cooperation, uh, democracy. 
which also sums up the profound differences between President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden. I don't think the choice could be clearer or the contrast starker. So bear with me for a second, Michael. On on leadership, whether we like it or not, um, the world just doesn't organize itself. And until this administration, uh, the U.S. had played a lead role in doing a lot of that organizing, helping to you know to write the rules, shape right. the norm, and, and animate the institutions that govern relations among nations. What we have now is a president who has unfortunately abdicated that responsibility, putting us in retreat from our allies, from international organizations, from hard-won agreements. And here's the problem. When we're not engaged, when we don't lead, then one of two things is likely to happen. Either some other country tries to take our place, but probably not in a way that advances our interests or values, or no one does. And then you get chaos or a vacuum filled by bad things before it's filled by good things. Either way, that's bad for us. So uh, Joe Biden would reassert American leadership, leading with our, our diplomacy. We'd actually show up again day in, day out. Uh, but to engage the world, not as it was um, in 2009 or even in 2017 when we left it, but as it is and as we anticipate it will become. Rising powers, new actors, super empowered by technology and information, who we have to bring along if we're going to make progress. And I think he would act with a combination of humility and confidence. Humility, because most of the world's problems are not about us, even as they affect us, and we can't just flip a switch to solve them, but also confidence, because when we act at our best, we still have a greater ability than any other country on earth to mobilize others. But cooperation here is critical, and that's the second piece. Not a single one of the big challenges we face, whether it's climate change or mass migration or technological disruption or pandemic disease, can be met by any one country acting alone, even one as powerful as our own. And there's no wall high enough or or wide enough to contain these threats. But at the very time, we need to find new ways to cooperate and bring other countries along by nearly every measure, the credibility and influence of the United States under President Trump are in free fall. Uh, You've seen the most recent Pew Global uh, survey. People have more confidence in Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping to do the right thing regarding world affairs than they do in the president of the United States. So we'll have to pick up the pieces of this carnage um, wrought by President Trump, uh, salvage our reputation, rebuild confidence in our leadership, and then mobilize the country and our allies to, to meet new challenges. Final piece is this, democracy. It still uh, it reflects who we are, how we see ourselves, and at least until recently, how the world has seen us, but it's being challenged. Um, and the strength of our own democracy at home is directly tied to our ability to be a force for progress in the world and to mobilize that collective action I was talking about. But here's the problem. President Trump's daily assault on our own democracy, on its institutions, on its values, on its people, that's deeply tarnished our ability uh, to lead. At the same time, the flip side is other democracies are a source of strength for our country, especially when we act together. But you know this, Michael, democracy has been in retreat. Freedom House ranks uh, countries, um, and it's done it for decades, of the 40 or so countries that were ranked fully free from uh, the 80s to the 90s to the early 2000s, half have fallen backwards. There's a democratic recession, and autocracies from Russia to China are trying to exploit our difficulties. And yet here again, the very moment democracies look to the United States to be leader of the free world, we have a president who, by embracing autocrats and dissing Democrats, seems to have suited up for the other side. So I think what Joe Biden would do would be to renew our democracy at home and then work to revitalize our alliances and partnerships with democracies around the world. You'll see an America that is leading not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And that starts with democracy. 
So Tony, this rebuilding ties with allies. You know, I still talk to a lot of former foreign government officials who I used to work with. And one of the questions that they have is, you know, how can a President Biden assure us that we're not going to go through, through the same thing again in 2024 or 2028, right? How can we make sure that we that the bet we put on the United States is going to be a long-term one? Look, there's no guaranteed answer, but I will say this, Michael. Um, so much hinges on uh, November 3rd. My own conversations with, with, with folks around the world, um, what I'm getting is if Joe Biden's elected on November 3rd, I think a lot of people will see the last four years as an aberration. Um, conversely, if President Trump is knowingly reelected, given all that we know uh, about his leadership and the way he engages abroad, uh, that will, I think, set us back for as long as I can look into the future. So, so much hinges on the very uh, fact of uh, the election itself and who wins and who loses. Much will be taken from that about, um, you know, people's sense of where America is and where it's going. Having said that, and in fairness, I do think that, that President Trump is as much uh, a symptom as he is a cause mm. uh, of some of the challenges that people see now. And he may also be an accelerant. Uh, but uh, the fact is, there are big underlying challenges that predated President Trump and that will um, succeed him uh, when he leaves office. Yeah, which kind of brings us to to what, you know, there's 24 hours in a day, right? And resources are finite. So to what extent does foreign policy get constrained by the problems at home, right? The acute problems of the pandemic and the economy and the more chronic problems of race and income inequality and uh, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera? Well, look, we, we have to face facts, which is the 800-pound gorilla is COVID-19. And it is the gravest challenge the United States has faced since World War II. It's killed more Americans than died during all of World War I and killed more Americans than perished in, in, in every war we fought since 1945, plus 9-11 combined. And of course, we've got a recession that it unleashed, the deepest downturn since the Great Depression, millions of Americans unemployed, uh, entire sectors of our economy uh, threatened uh, with ruin. And then we've got so many tags, uh, tails excuse me, that could wag the COVID dog. And I remember we were talking about this months ago, an emerging uh, markets debt crisis, food insecurity, migratory upheavals, humanitarian disasters. And then on top of that, more protectionism, more nationalism, more xenophobia, all of which can ricochet back in different ways on uh, the United States. So in a sense, the pandemic itself is a national security crisis of the first order. But I think that getting out from under the COVID rock actually requires asserting American leadership, not running away from it. Think about it this way. Look at some of the previous global crises, none of this magnitude, but still very significant, that uh, we had to deal with. Uh, HIV AIDS, uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis, Ebola. In each and every instance, the U.S. led the way to international cooperation and coordination. Uh, the Bush administration with HIV AIDS doing a remarkable job saving hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives. Uh, the Obama administration, again, with the financial crisis and, and, and Ebola. We seized the G7 the G20, international financial institutions. This time out, uh, the United States, when COVID broke, actually was chairing the G7. We didn't even call a meeting. It took the French president, Macron, to convene uh, that group. And the G20 has been totally ineffectual in the absence of our own engagement. 
So I think these two things go together. And the other problem is the world doesn't take a timeout because of COVID. Uh, so I don't think we'd have the luxury of approaching things sequentially. We have to be able to walk and chew a lot of gum at the same time, getting COVID under control, but also dealing with some of its repercussions and dealing with the other challenges uh, that have not gone away just because COVID is um, striking everywhere. So Tony, the second kind of broad question I wanted to ask you is uh, about the issues of the tools of statecraft, right? The military, the diplomatic community, our economic power. How does the vice president feel about the health of those tools and even more importantly about the balance among them in terms of how they've been used over the last couple of decades? So I think he'd tell you that we're, we're that the balance is not uh, is not good and that uh, there is over-reliance on the military tool and an under-reliance on, for example, on diplomacy. And that would change in a, in a Biden administration. Let me just talk about the piece that, that I know best, and that's the diplomatic piece, and in particular, the State Department. Uh, so, you know, we heard some talk about um, swagger at the State Department, but unfortunately, it's more like a stagger. As I hear it from so many foreign service officers and civil servants, we have a department that's demoralized and decimated by departures and vacancies in the in the most senior ranks. And we have a leadership that does not seem to have the backs of its own people when they are literally attacked by the president of the United States. Everything is politicized with loyalty lists, efforts to find so-called traitors or deep staters. Um, there was just, you may have seen this, there's a, you know, a major survey of federal employees that's, I, I believe, undertaken every year. The one last year, 2019, found that political coercion was rampant in certain bureaus in the State Department. And here's, uh, here's a statistic that, that left me with my uh, jaw dropping. Within the State Department's legal bureau, when asked if, uh, about the, the State Department's leadership, 34% uh, said the department's leadership did not have high levels of honesty and integrity versus 0% in 2016 when John Kerry was running the department and Barack Obama was president. I've worked with foreign service officers, as I know you have, in my case, for nearly 25 years. And for virtually all of them, I could not begin to tell you who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, who's an independent, uh, or something else. I can tell right. you that uh, across the board, they're remarkable professionals who dedicate their careers to serving our country, not one party uh, or another. So I think what you see under a Biden administration is diplomacy as our tool of first resort. Uh, the world's greatest power deserves to have the world's very best diplomatic corps. And I think uh, you'd see us support and invest in reforms to make the department more strategic, more modern, more agile, uh, more effective. And we'd be treating our diplomats with respect, not contempt. Uh, and I would hope and believe and, and, and expect that we would not only expand and reform the Foreign Service, but do it in a way that reflects the diversity and richness of the country it represents. Okay, Tony, let's uh, let's shift to some specific issues. And let me just throw them out one at a time and get you to talk about how uh, President Biden might approach them. And I'll put the what I think the most important one is first, which is which is climate change. Yeah. So, Michael, here it's interesting. I think it's 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 it, this is a reflection of what we were talking about a minute ago. Uh, when it comes to climate change, I think that success at home is directly tied to our ability to lead effectively abroad. Uh, success can breed success and, and strengthen our credibility. When we're actually modeling good behavior and when we get results, 
uh, other countries are more likely uh, to follow our lead. Conversely, when we fall short of the mark, as for example, on COVID-19 or, or racial justice, it's a lot harder to change someone else's conduct. So in the case of climate change, we're 15% of global emissions. So by definition, we can do everything right. But if the rest of the world responsible for 85% of emissions fails to do the right thing, we can't solve the problem. But we'll be a lot more effective in getting others to do the right thing if we're actually doing it ourselves. So under a Biden administration, I think you'd see us urgently embrace much greater ambition to meet the scope of the challenge, Uh, ensure that we achieve 100% clean uh, clean energy economy and get to net zero emissions no later than, than 2050 a series of executive orders on day one that go well beyond uh, what the Obama-Biden administration uh, did to put us on the right track, uh, working with Congress to get legislation to establish an enforcement mechanism that includes milestone targets no later than the end of the vice president's first term in 2025, historic investments in clean energy and climate research and innovation, incentivizing the rapid deployment of clean energy innovations across the economy, and building a stronger, more resilient nation with the investments we make and infrastructure that are uh, climate ready. And as we do that, we're in a much better position to rally the rest of the world to meet the challenge. So the vice president's committed to uh, rejoining Paris on day one, but then going further than that, leading an effort to get every major country to ramp up the ambition of their domestic climate targets and working to make sure those commitments are actually transparent, enforceable, and also trying to make sure that countries can't cheat Uh, by using some of our economic leverage and the power uh, of our example as well. So climate change would be fully integrated into our foreign policy and national security strategies, uh, as well as our approach to trade. But you've got to bring the domestic and the international piece together if you're going to succeed. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Tony Blinken. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Okay, Tony, China. Mm. So that's that's the uh, that's the big one. And look, uh, I think we all recognize China poses a growing challenge. Arguably, the biggest challenge we face from another nation state, economically, technologically, militarily, even diplomatically. And uh, you know, the relationship has adversarial aspects, competitive aspects, but also cooperative ones. So I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves is what is the most effective strategy to protect and advance our security, our prosperity, our values when it comes to engaging with China? And I think the vice president would tell you that we have to start by putting ourselves in a position of strength from which to engage China so that the relationship moves forward more on our terms uh, than on theirs. Here's the problem. Right now, by every key metric, China's strategic position is stronger and ours is weaker as a result of President Trump's leadership. Um, think about it this way. President helped China advance its own key strategic goals, weakening American alliances, leaving a vacuum in the world for China to fill, abandoning our values and giving China a green light 
to trample on human rights and democracy from Xinjiang to, to Hong Kong. And maybe worst of all, debasing our own democracy by attacking its institutions, its people, its values every day, and so reducing its appeal. It's another way of saying, Michael, that in many ways, the, the challenge posed by China is almost less about their strength and more about our own self-inflicted weaknesses. Um, yeah. the, cha- the challenge is about us. And, and so that means we have to focus on the competitiveness of our own economy and workers, the strength of our own democracy and political system, uh, the vibrancy of our own alliances and partnerships, and uh, the assertion of our own values, all of which President Trump has done so much to undermine, but all of which are actually within our control. So that's where the vice president would focus first in making those investments. And that's also, by the way, the best basis upon which to advance cooperation with China on issues of mutual concern, whether it's climate change, whether it's nonproliferation, or global health. And then how do you, how confident are you, Tony, that if we do all of that, um, and, and in particular, if we build, rebuild the alliances and, and build a kind of coalition that can say to China, you're welcome to exert more influence in the world if you live by the rules of the international order. If not, we're going to push back on you. How confident are you that we can change their approach? Look, there's no guarantee. But uh, for example, on trade, when we're acting alone, uh, when we manage to pick fights with, um, uh, with our partners and allies who are similarly situated when it comes to China, uh, and so they're not, uh, not with us, uh, and we're acting and trying to deal with this alone, we're about 25% of the world's GDP. When we have our partners and allies with us, we're 50 or 60% uh, of, of the world's GDP. That's a lot harder uh, for China to ignore. And we have one, uh, we have many big issues, but we have one of the most, um, I think, defining issues of our time will be the fault line between techno-democracies on the one hand and techno-autocracies like China on the other hand. And whose rules, whose norms, whose values, to the extent technology is infused with values, uh, carry the day is going to make a huge difference in the lives of people across this planet. We have to do a much better job in uh, leading, coordinating, working with uh, the other techno-democracies to make sure that we carry the day and not China. Okay, Russia, with the realization that a President Biden would be facing a Vladimir Putin who actually worked to prevent President Biden's election. Mm. So I, I, I came back across something a, a few weeks ago that I, um, that I copied and made sure that I kept with me. And I just want to take a second. I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's a quote. And it, it, it reads as follows. At the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. Russian's rulers have invariably sensed that their rule was relatively archaic in form. To this was added, as Russia came into contact with an economically advanced West, a fear of more competent, more powerful, more highly organized societies. For this reason, Russia's rulers have always feared foreign penetration. Russians will participate officially in international organizations where they see opportunity of extending power or inhibiting or diluting the power of others. Efforts will be made to disrupt uh, Western national self-confidence to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, to stimulate all forms of disunity. Poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents. Well, that uh, quote uh, was written um, in 1946 by um, an individual by the name of George Kennan in his Mm. famous long telegram. And Mm. it is eerily on point to what we're experiencing now. We've got a president unfortunately, who's making things worse 
not better. When President Trump stands with Vladimir Putin on the world stage and takes his word about Russia's attacks on our elections over that of our intelligence agencies, that exacerbates the problem. When we have a president who is told uh, that um, uh, Russia may be putting bounties on the heads of our troops in Afghanistan and does nothing, in fact, worse than nothing, by his own acknowledgement, speaking to President Putin at least six times after he got that report and not raising it, not confronting him, and even inviting President Putin to Washington and Russia back into the G7, we have a real fundamental problem. So I would say, you know, uh, quickly, uh, a President Biden would be in the business of confronting Mr. Putin uh, for his aggressions, not embracing him, uh, not trashing NATO, but strengthening its deterrence, investing in new capabilities to deal with challenges in, in cyberspace, in outer space, under the sea, uh, AI, electronic warfare, and give robust security assistance to countries like Ukraine, Georgia, the Western Balkans. Impose real costs uh, where we need to. Coordinated sanctions. Exposing corruption. Being very clear and very specific with President Putin about what he risks. But also, maybe, what he might gain through trade, through investment, through a seat at the table, if Russia changes its conduct uh, to relieve some of its growing dependence on China. We've got to you know, build our own resilience by hardening election infrastructure, getting dark money out of politics, pushing tech companies to deal with disinformation. But we also have to deal at the same time, and we can, with strategic stability. Uh, the vice president believes we should extend a new start and uh, look for other avenues to advance strategic stability with Russia, even as we can uh, confront Mr. Putin's aggressive actions. Tony, North Korea, North Korean nuclear threat threat is greater today than it was in in uh, January of 2017 yeah. when the vice president left left office. Look, our goal is clear: uh, a Korean Peninsula free of nuclear weapons. Um, it takes very smart, very tough diplomacy to get there, working closely with, with allies and partners. Uh, I would be the first to acknowledge this is a hard problem. But we managed uh, to uh, get success with Iran, different uh, details that, that, that matter, but a hard problem too. I still think we have opportunities uh, to move in the same direction with North Korea. The problem is, as you mentioned, under President Trump's watch, the problem already hard has gotten uh, more, not less dangerous. We've had a president who's veered erratically from bombastic threats to exchanging what he himself called love letters with one of the world's worst tyrants. We've had three empty summits with no preparation with Kim Jong-un. The art of the deal really turned into the art of the steel in, in Kim's favor. Uh, one of the world's worst tyrants got, gets equal billing on the world stage with the president of the United States. Uh, and to boot, we suspend military exercises with our allies to appease him. We take our foot off the pedal of economic pressure. Uh, what do we get in return? Um, worse than nothing. North Korea has actually increased its nuclear arsenal and its missile capabilities. And despite that, uh, the president actually said to the American people, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Uh, I got to say, lying to Americans about our own security and matters of war and peace may be the worst of uh, the president's adversarial relationship with the truth. Um, I don't know. Maybe he thinks that like COVID-19, North Korea's nukes will somehow miraculously disappear. So the hard part is this. We have to work closely with allies like South Korea and Japan and press China uh, to build uh, genuine economic pressure to squeeze North Korea to get it to the negotiating table. Uh, we need to cut off its various avenues and access to um, to resources, something we were doing 
very vigorously at the end of the um, Obama-Biden administration. That takes a lot of time, a lot of preparation, a lot of hard work. But again, it can pay off. It, it did get us the Iran nuclear deal, which was working until President Trump tore it up. And I think we could get it uh, get us to a verifiable agreement with North Korea. Now, I'm not under any illusions. I don't think North Korea is going to be abandoning the totality of its arsenal uh, tomorrow. Uh, so this is something that would have to proceed in stages and phases, but it is doable with sustained, focused foreign policy. So Tony, Iran, you mentioned Iran. It's obviously on the list here. It sure is. And there again, unfortunately, we have, a, I think, a terrible indictment of uh, the current administration's foreign policy. When President Trump walked away from the, the Iran deal, uh, an agreement that, again, was verifiably working to block Iran's path to, to nuclear weapons, or at least to the fissile material necessary to, um, to make a weapon, uh, he promised a better deal. And of course, the opposite has happened. Iran is building back its nuclear capability. Um, President Trump effectively freed Iran of its commitments under the uh, nuclear agreement. And so now it's enriching uranium at higher levels. It's stockpiling uh, more. Uh, it's using more advanced centrifuges. And the breakout time necessary for Iran to have enough nuclear material to uh, fuel a weapon has decreased from more than a year, as it was under the so-called JCPOA, to a handful of months. Um, and all of this has happened under President Trump's watch, and he has no plan that I can discern uh, to deal with it. So now fast forward, and uh, in the process of doing this, we managed to alienate virtually all of our key partners who wanted to stick with the deal. Uh, and they've now spent most of their energy and efforts trying to keep the deal alive instead of working with us to uh, confront some of Iran's behavior, uh, egregious behavior in other um, parts of the world and uh, in other areas. <laughs> We've had the most recent chapter play out just in the last, uh, in the last few days, uh, the arms embargo, uh, conventional arms embargo that, was expire that expires in October. Um, the United States launched an effort to extend it indefinitely at the United Nations. <laughs> we got a grand total of one out of the 15 members of the Security Council to support us. Russia and China got to keep their veto ink dry. It was a diplomatic debacle. Now we're invoking the sanctions snapback provisions in the Iran nuclear agreement no negotiated by President Obama and his administration. Um, there's just one catch. Those snapback provisions to put sanctions back can be invoked under the terms of the agreement by a participant to the agreement. And in pulling out of the Iran deal, the administration literally titled its press release, Ending U.S. Participation in the JCPOA. So our partners and allies are saying, hey, uh, you can't snap back these sanctions. You're no longer a participant in the agreement. So uh, if Joe Biden is president, um, uh, if Iran uh, returns to compliance with the nuclear agreement, we would do the same. But then we would use that as a platform to try to, uh, working with our allies and partners, to, uh, to try to strengthen and lengthen it. And that also has the merits, I think, of putting us back on the same page with our allies and partners so that we can more effectively push back together against Iran's other destabilizing activities and make sure that when it comes to those activities, Iran is isolated, not the United States. And then, Tony, the, the, the last issue on my list, a lot of people have different names for it, but but I call it endless wars. So mm -hmm. yeah. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, you know, any number of places where US troops are on the ground involved in some way. Um, how does the vice president think about 
that issue? He's he's been very clear about this. Um, and he said um, that large-scale, open-ended deployment uh, of large standing U.S. forces in conflict zones with no clear strategy uh, should end and will end under his watch. He's very focused on the conditions under which you would actually deploy U.S. forces. Vital national interests need to be at stake, uh, or maybe it's a commitment uh, to, a, to a treaty ally. Uh, we'd have to have a clearly defined strategy and end game, and we need the informed consent of the American people, ideally through their representatives in Congress. But we also need to distinguish between, for example, uh, these endless wars with the large-scale open-ended deployment uh, of uh, U.S. forces with, for example, uh, discrete, small-scale, sustainable operations, uh, maybe led by special forces, to support local actors. This is something, uh, Michael, as, as you know very well, we worked on uh, with the by, with, and through strategy uh, right. in the Obama-Biden administration. And it actually worked very effectively uh, in Iraq and Syria to defeat uh, ISIS. In Syria, at, at its height, I think we had about 2,000 uh, U.S. forces, mostly special operators and the support for them. They leveraged 60 to 70,000 Syrian Democratic forces, Kurds and Arabs, who did uh, the heavy lifting and the heavy fighting uh, to defeat ISIS and take away the geographic uh, caliphate. Uh, that's smart. That's strong. That's sustainable. That's effective. So. In, in ending uh, the endless wars, we also have to be careful not to paint with too broad uh, a, a brushstroke. Uh, there are ways, times, uh, means by which uh, we need to be able to use um, uh, force, but very, very carefully cabined, as I suggested a minute ago. Tony, you've been great with your time. Last question. You know the vice president better than anyone else when it comes to foreign policy and national security. Tell us how you think, as commander-in-chief, a President Biden would think about a decision to put U.S. servicemen and women in harm's way. Well, you know, one of the most, I think, uh, painful moments um, in, in recent uh, weeks has been the reporting about what President Trump thinks about our men and women in uniform, the folks who sign up to put their lives on the line for this country, uh, calling them, as has been reported, suckers, losers. And of course, on the record, in his own voice, he called John McCain a loser for becoming a prisoner of war. And we talked about the, the incident with the reported Russian bounties on our forces in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, and the president did nothing. I don't think the contrast could be any starker um, on this issue when it comes to the difference between uh, President Trump and a President Biden. Joe Biden knows what it's like to send his own child into harm's way, as he did when his son, uh, Bo, was deployed to Iraq during um, the Obama-Biden administration. It's personal uh, to him. And I think better than most, he can, uh, as, a, as a president, he would be able to put himself in the shoes of mothers and fathers, of sisters and brothers, of, of children who have a loved one uh, deployed. And one of the things I've heard the vice president say for a long time uh, is it boils down to this. Government has many obligations, but only one sacred obligation. And that's to train and equip and protect uh, our troops when they go off to battle and to look after them and their families when they come home. That basic 
obligation, that sacred obligation, as he calls it, that would guide a President Biden's decision making when it comes to our men and women in uniform. Tony, um, thank you very much for all of that. And thank you very much for joining us. I hope I hope this encourages the Trump team to provide a person to outline uh, President Trump's thinking on these important foreign policy and national security issues. But thank you very much for taking the time today to join us. Michael, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. That was Tony Blinken. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.